So I'm uh, Susan, Susan H., a compulsive overeater. It's an honor to be here. It's very early for me to be here. So <laughs> um, I actually work very late, and I usually go to bed around 3 in the morning. So um, it is service and, uh, and a privilege. And it's been a while since I've spoken. I've uh, had a very challenging, hard three years, which I expect to talk about. Uh, and I wasn't sure I wanted to because I'd prefer to speak after the challenge, after the three years, and tell you, you know, how, how much I've grown spiritually and I'm a spiritual giant. And, um, <clears throat> that's not really where I, where I am today. And I, um, I, my husband uh, speaks too, and I, I thought about asking him to take my place. I would ask um, John's opinion, of course, of that. But then after my prayer and meditation, I... Um, got direction that I need to speak my truth today and that it can probably help people. So uh, I'll tell my story briefly. Um, I actually only know like three or four people in here and I'm happy to see the ones that I know. So you may not all know my story. Um, I started overeating when I was very young, when I was uh, eight. My parents were divorced. I had a twin brother who um, went to live with my father and then two years later my father died so I had great big feelings about all of that and um, like many of us I come from a family that didn't like uh, feelings and I found a way to not have them and as as an eight-year-old the way to do that was through candy Um, and um, you know, I, I don't know if compulsive overeaters are made or born, and in, in a way it doesn't matter to me because um, I am one. But uh, science is in in a lot of this stuff now, and apparently uh, I ha- we have a predisposition, a, g- a genetic predisposition for it, and then your environment can bring it out. So, um, so I have both a genetic predisposition, and then that environment brought it out, and I used... I used food from the time I was eight to numb myself out from reality and anesthetize myself. And then when I was 10, I started uh, developing and um, some people, my mother and my doctor, called that getting fat. So I I was put on a diet when I was 10. And again, the science is in now. When you restrict, um, your body goes into starvation mode, and then when you stop restricting, your body makes up for it, which is why people say when they go on a diet, they always gain weight. So then when I make up for it, then I went on a diet again, and we know that process, right? That was binging, dieting, binging, dieting, binging, dieting. That was, that was my, all of my teens. Um, it was, you know, I thought... Everything would be all right if I had a boyfriend and everything would be all right if my family loved me and everything would be all right if I just got thin and if I just got thin, I would have all those things. And it was all just a great big distraction from really living my life. So I did every diet there was to do Uh, in my 20s, in my early 20s, it got especially bad Um, by In my early 20s, I stopped the diets and I started more um, sophisticated forms of trying to deal with food obsession and weight. Um, Diets don't work. Fat is a feminist issue. Intuitive eating. Um, I really especially liked the one where 
If you just eat what you've been depriving yourself of, you won't want to eat those things anymore. (laughs) I'm glad to hear some laughter in that. I actually, you know, there are as many ways to recover from this disease as there are people who have this disease. So it's confusing because I have friends who recover that way. And I've asked them to be my sponsor. And I've tried to, that, I've tried to make that my recovery, to eat the things I feel deprived of. Um, but there's just not enough chocolate for me. <laughs> so, um, so I've done a lot of experimenting and uh, found what works for me, which uh, I, I will get to. So all of those, and I did therapy, and I did groups for bulimics, even though I'm uh, not a bulimic, I ate like one, and in a way, I think my diets were purging, you know, it was a binging dieting, binging dieting, it was good girl, bad girl, it was um, binging and purging and binging and purging, but now, some of you I'm sure know the words, the, the DSM, is that what that, that is? You know, now I'm in there with the uh, BED, is that binge eating disorder? Um, so we did have anorexics and bulimics, and now garden variety compulsive overeaters are, are in there too. Um, <clears throat> so I eventually came to Overeaters Anonymous. So at, at my worst, I was, um, I dropped out of college. I didn't tell my family. And I lived in Seattle, and there's a street called University Avenue, the Ave. And I just went up and down the Ave into places where I knew had Seattle was famous for coffee houses, you know. And coffee with coffee houses comes pastries. So I just went in and out, and in and out, and in and out of those places. And then I would go home and wait until everyone was asleep and eat and run out of things to eat, and then go out in the middle of the night in my car and eat and um, buy groceries and come home and run out of groceries and then steal money from pockets or kite checks and go out and buy some more. Um, Scratching the itch that couldn't be scratched, you know, just the next bite was going to fix it. The next bite was going to fix it. And of, of course it never did. And then it got light and I got depressed and passed out. And, uh, I, at that point in time, I gained about 40 or 50 pounds in a couple of months. So I'm a very low bottom compulsive overeater. And during that time, I could not, um, I had alcoholic boyfriends. I couldn't keep my waitressing jobs. I crashed my car. I ended up taking the bus and I went to jail. So that's, um, I am a non-functional, you know, you've heard of functional alcoholics. I'm a non-functional compulsive overeater. I know that there are people who can eat and do their life, and then they question whether they're really powerless. Um, It was not hard for me to, I'm actually really grateful for for that low, low bottom, because um, I knew when I came into these rooms that something was really wrong. It was very serious, and... uh, I didn't know that it was going to kill me because I was young. By the way, that was 29 years ago. Um, But I knew that I didn't want to keep living that way. In fact, I had uh, said a prayer. If if this is the way my life is, if I'm going to keep doing this, I I would rather just die right now. Please just take me. I was in the car. Please just take me right now. And I fully expected to get in an accident that night and didn't. And I thought there was hope. And shortly afterwards is when I came into these rooms. So when I got here, I was willing to do whatever you told me to do. 
I was just so desperate. It was just no way to live. And I'm grateful for that, too. I was very willing, and I have basically remained willing for 29 years. Uh, it'll be 30 years this January on OA's birthday. My OA birthday is also OA's birthday. So um, a lot of the things you told me to do I thought were really stupid. Uh, <sighs> I can't now. I, I can't even look back because now I know they're not stupid. I couldn't even tell you what I thought was stupid. It's just like every time my sponsor told me something, I rolled my eyes. And um, so um, she asked me to write what what happens when I abstain and what happens when I don't. And so I had this long list of what happens when I don't abstain, and then I had this long list of what happens when I do abstain. And I kept that with me for many, many years because my disease doesn't want to remember. You know, it's, um, there's a, I used to hear this a lot years ago, the slogan, remember when. So I have a little snapshot in my head of laying on the ground in my house, um, drinking water, because that's all I could do after eating like that. And um, like my stomach was full, and so I was, full up to my mouth you know um, it was that's a snapshot I keep in my head and that's what's going to happen if I go down that road so that was a really good exercise for me and um, and I wrote a history of my compulsive overeating although I didn't really need to do that because I knew I had a problem and that it was serious chronic lifelong fatal uh, I didn't have a little overeating problem. I didn't have a weight problem. It wasn't something that was going to be fixed by um, what's that? Behavioral behavior modification. Yes. So, um, and then you asked me to believe in God. That was one of the things that I thought was really stupid. And um, so I just decided to act as if, and I did that for a long time, and that didn't really work for me. Because when life got challenging, I couldn't really believe in a God that I was pretending existed. Because it was pretend. It was make-believe. So I decided to ask myself, what did I really, really, really believe in? And there was something that I believed in. And recently I heard someone describe it as um, that the stuff that makes the flowers grow. And I love that definition. And that's um, And all through the years, I have not defined it Um, I've heard and the big book actually helped me the big book gave me words for it spirit of the universe um, creative intelligence you know I I could avoid the God word and I could go for things like that and and I've heard other things source spirit matrix the force Um, you know there are there are lots of there is something out there that is bigger than me I don't know what it is and uh, I heard someone say, if, if, if I think I'm in charge of the universe, then go to the beach and try to make the tide go out. And I, I understand that. I can't make the tide go out. So, um, so that's what I started. That's, that was really the beginning of my spiritual life. And then I went to Seattle for my first Christmas, abstinent Christmas. It was the first time I was not anesthetized. And uh, I could not believe what it was like to live in reality around my family. Uh, I was just stunned. And, um, and so I started my first fourth step. 
Um, the best way to tell you about my, my family life, I can just say it so quickly and simply, is that um, I have a twin. I have a twin brother. And uh, on our 50th birthday party, my family had a surprise birthday party for him and invited me. <laughs> and then when I said I was going to have to think about it because it was my birthday, too, they got very mad. So... Um, I did end up going. I had a great time, but um, that was after prayer and meditation. And I went and I was very gracious and um, enjoyed his, his birthday and um, celebrated my birthday by going to, down the Grand Canyon on a mule and stayed there overnight and had a big party for myself, too. So um, so that's, those, that, if you can imagine growing up with that, that was the reason I ate. I just stuffed all that down, and then I wasn't stuffing it down. So um, I had, um, I am pulling out my big book. So I had a design for living. Uh, this is a very worn book. The pages are <laughs> falling out. Um, I have a design for living that, that really works, and, um, and I stopped looking at other places for answers. This really was my answer, and it gave me a life that I never ever dreamt I've had and I actually like telling people I went to jail because I know standing up here looking at me you would never ever think I went to jail right um, so I lost my top weight was somewhere over 200 pounds and when I came into the rooms I lost I lost weight but I stayed at like a size 12 and a size 14 which I was happy to be at because it was um, it was they were normal sizes I could shop in normal shops and I also wanted to be thinner, but I really just couldn't take any more reality than that. And it was, I was um, 14 years into program before I was willing to ask for perfectionism to be removed. Um, I had worked a pretty vigorous program, and when I ask for something to be removed, I just get lots of opportunities to deal with it. So I knew that when I asked for perfectionism to be removed, I was going to start making lots of mistakes, and I just was not willing to go there. And it was when I asked for perfectionism to be removed that I was able to let go of the rest of my weight because I couldn't be a perfectionist and and be thinner. So um, one of the things I did... Was a, this is a really, really important prayer for me, and I'm praying it these days, too. It's in the OA book on page 23. Uh, <clears throat> I'll just read it. We ask for God's guidance in everything we do. I just use the word God as shorthand for whatever it is I don't understand that's big. Um, as we become aware of what our eating guidelines should be, we ask God for the willingness and the ability to live within them each day. We ask and we receive First, the willingness, and then the ability. We can count on this without fail. So I looked at that and thought, I don't even know what my eating guidelines should be. So my prayer was, please show me my eating guidelines and then give me the willingness and the ability to live within them each day. And to my surprise, I ended up uh, in an outside eating program. I thought I knew everything there was to know about nutrition. Uh, I thought all of us in these rooms knew everything there was to know about nutrition. And that... um, I wasn't going to learn anything new, but I really did learn some things about food. I call it food school. And 
what I learned for me was how incredibly sensitive I am to carbohydrates. Um, I knew that I was sensitive to sugar, but I didn't understand. So, for example, I learned that, um, so I've never binged on rice. I've never binged on corn. But what happens when I eat rice, white rice, is I feel like I'm going to die if I don't have a cookie. And um, one time when I, it was an experiment. I knew that corn, I knew that I might have a little trouble with corn. And uh, I had corn at El Pollo Loco. And that afternoon, you know how a dog is with a squirrel? I'm like that with bakeries. Bakery! <laughs> and, <laughs> thanks. So, um, so that afternoon, you know, I was um, squirreling bakery. Bakery! And, and I thought, what is going on? Because, you know, I laugh about it, but, I mean, I see bakery and everything in me wants to go into that bakery. And I feel like I'm going to die if I don't go into that bakery. And... Um, I realized, oh, it's the corn. So I didn't know that. I just didn't know that I had that kind of sensitivity to carbs and, uh, you know, the glycemic index, you know, what's high and, and what's low, because I hadn't binged on those. I just thought it was sugar and flour that was my problem. So, um, so I lost weight. I got down to being where I really liked being. I stayed there for a long time. It's, it's a little thinner than I am right now. So I'll talk. I actually don't know what time I started. I don't know how much. I'm going to give you a five-minute warning. Okay, great. Um, and, and, I, and three years ago, my husband had a traumatic brain injury, uh, a severe traumatic brain injury. And... Um, some some of you have heard me talk about him man I love that man and um, and he I uh, met him in program boy meets girl in, in these verbs <laughs> thank you um, and he almost died and then, and he was in a coma, and when he woke up, he didn't know who I was, and he lived in the 1970s, and he thought he was married to his first wife, and Abraham Lincoln was the president, and, you know, all the things you see in movies. And I had to fight, like, these are not working at all. I had to, I had to, fight, I, I had to fight so hard for his care. I became such a strong advocate for him. Um, and the doctors tried to shame me into, into like, being quiet about his care. And he, he would have died, really, with, without my advocacy. Um, and he's had a spectacular recovery. Um, and there's no such thing as a full recovery from brain injury. When those brain cells die, they die. And a full recovery means that their brain makes up for it in different ways. The brain is plastic and, and, and grows new pathways. So that means he's had a personality change, and I'm living with a, a new man. Um, and it took me, so I'm into my third year. It took me two years to begin to grieve the loss. And um, in my third year now, I'm accepting that he, he's gone. He's uh, the man that I knew and loved is gone, and this is a different man. And... Um, you can only imagine how challenging that might be. You know, I didn't, I didn't get a funeral. I didn't get cards. Uh, people don't understand this tremendous loss I've had because he's still here. It's called ambiguous loss. 
And my recovery is that I can celebrate his spectacular recovery and also still feel the loss. Uh, you know, it's like being able to hold them both. And um, after that, and then I had PTSD, and uh, not surprisingly. And then I, uh, my mother's health tanked, and uh, I went to take care of her, and then uh, my health tanked, and then my cat died, who sort uh, cats are members of my family to me, and she got me through my husband's injury. And, um, and then last December, my mother died. So here's what happened last December. You, you know, often when a family member dies, the family goes nuts. Uh, and all of, we're all in our, all of our character defects come up. And uh, my, fa- my siblings went nuts. Nuts. They were insane. And I thought, I probably will be insane, too, because that's, that's what people do. And I, I have to say, I don't say this easily about myself, I was absolutely magnificent. It was, <laughs> it was just, I so saw my years of recovery and the payoff of it, and so did they. The family mythology was always that I was fat, ugly, overly sensitive, overly emotional, um, and... The flip side of that is that I have a deep, rich inner life and that my sensitivity is a gift. And boy, did they see it. Uh, we would not be speaking to each other if it weren't for me. I called family meetings and, and all of my service in Overeaters Anonymous helped me to facilitate these meetings and be a leader. And um, that mythology is dead and gone. There is no way that they can think that about me anymore. Um, and so food has also been a little challenging because I haven't liked reality for the last three years. The, the reality is tough. It's still tough for me. I'm still in the middle of it. Um, and so I'm back to praying that prayer. I'm back to, I'm back to asking God, show me how to eat. Because um, I'm not willing to restrict to the extent that I was restricting then. And, um, and I, I want peace with food I don't always have peace with food now and that's why I'm here right Um, my I have never done this program perfectly a friend of mine calls me an orthodox OA um, and I thought no that's not quite right but she said no Susan you came in when abstinence was a tool and that makes you an orthodox OA and I thought no that makes me a conservative OA Orthodox OA is gracious, right? And conservative OA is abstinence is a tool, and reformed OA is abstinence is our primary purpose. So um, I imagine I imagine there will be some questions. What I and I will just finish up with this. What I have is a program for living that really works, and these have been tough years for me. And this pro this this design for living has really worked for me and I have walked through it somewhat gracefully and um, and I still am working on being spiritually fit Uh, you know I've had to physical fitness takes effort and spiritual fitness takes effort too and so I am spending more time and putting out more effort towards being 
spiritually fit because what we have is a daily reprieve based on our fit spiritual condition, right? So thank you for letting me share. Okay, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Uh, Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay, so I'll open it up to questions. Yes. In instances where um, it may not be breaking your abstinence, but you want food or more food, how do you use programming to get through that? Well, the first line of defense is prayer. And I have seen miracles happen, um, really surprising things happen. And also... um, I need to look at what prompted it. You know, I, I'm not a person who just says, oh, I'm a compulsive overeater. I slipped. It's like, it's a big, giant red flag. What happened? Um, or what is happening? And I used to, I was always told it was always about my feelings. What am I feeling? And to take care of my feelings. And I'm realizing more it's my thoughts. So when I think bakery, um, it might have been the corn, or it might have been, what was I thinking right before I thought bakery? And I can go back to that thought and then realize that that thought doesn't serve me at all. And how can I change that thought into something that will serve me? Um, it's also really important for me to get sleep and to get rest. Um, I, I would go so far as to say if I don't get enough sleep, I can't stay abstinent. I just I lose my power of choice in food with, without rest. Um, and, and I lose my power of choice in food without uh, meditation at, in the morning and my 10th step at night. 10th step is um, like the relapse prevention step. Uh, and so if I let things pile up without looking at it in my 10th step, then before I know it, I'm obsessing about food so I really have to stay on top of it and then when I don't stay on top of it you know we have all these wonderful tools most of which I use not all of them Um, I want to I want to think about it and really answer it honestly because it's really important I ask myself what's going on I ask myself what I'm hungry for and how I can get those needs met. And if I can't get those needs met right away, to trust myself that I can get those needs met. So, for instance, the feeling might be, I can't stand this. The thought might be, I can't stand this. And then it's, well, yeah, I can. It's, and it's that simple, you know. Um, if I think of more examples, I'll, I'll come back to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, I heard an analogy that if you also feel, I'd love to hear you talk about it. Uh, you gave up certain foods that you know you loved, and you still eat, obviously. Uh, you are now married to a different 
person, but you're still married. There's a grieving in the marriage that you were describing, mm-hmm. which feels completely appropriate to me. Was there also a grieving in the food? Oh, absolutely. The question was, um, was there a grieving in letting go of the food? Yes, there was also a grieving in how much of my life I had lost. Um, and right now, I'm going through a grieving of um, not being young anymore and not having... I didn't really get a chance to be young and beautiful because I was, remember, for many years I was staying at a, at a size 12, size 14. So... Um, and a big part of recovery, I believe, is grieving losses. I mean, it started with the very first abstinent meal and pushing the plate away and grieving that loss, you know. Um, so uh, people often talk about the comfort of food, the comfort of overeating and the comfort of those foods that we, it may be in our best interest to let go of. Um, and years ago I heard, if food is comforting, are you comfortable? what's comforting about it you know uh, um, so yes I had to grieve the loss of them but it was also like good riddance I hope I never want you again because you wreck my life um, I do as I mentioned I do want it sometimes again and um, as I've mentioned my abstinence isn't perfect and sometimes I do eat those things um, What do I want to say about that? I, I, I think that I, I'm going to eat it to feel better, but I always feel worse. Always. And the difference between before recovery, when I fell down, I couldn't get back up. And now I can get back up. Um, I know that I'm digressing. In many ways, I think that a big part of recovery is grieving. Mm-hmm. Grieving the, the, the part of our life we didn't live. Uh, grieving not, not being a normal eater. Yeah. Thank you so much. So much clarity and grace and beauty. Um, can you share your abstinence? What is your abstinence? Yes. Um, I heard a panel of old-timers years ago at the birthday party, and almost every single one of them said, it's keeping coming back. I was so surprised by that. So um, I've had to give a lot of thought to what my abstinence is, which is different than my food plan. So my food plan is um, eating six small meals a day and avoiding sugar and flour. And I say avoiding sugar and flour because when I say no sugar and flour then the rebel in me wants to act out. So I avoid sugar and flour like the plague um, because it is just not in my best interest. Um, so I, I'm finding myself scared to say this. I, I would say that I can define my abstinence as when I fall down, I get up. Um, there's a, The sixth step actually helped me with that in the AA 12 and 12. And um, I like to read that sometimes because the sixth step says, how can we accept the entire implication of step six? Why that is perfection? This sounds like a hard question, but practically speaking, it isn't. Step one, where we made the 100% admission we were powerless over food, only step one, can be practiced with absolute perfection. And I thought, well, I can't 
this is food. Now, I know that some of you are very black and white, and that works for you. And, um, you know, an alcoholic can't drink milk. I mean, can drink milk or orange juice, but they can't drink whiskey. Um, so, you know, my situation with the rice and corn, thats it's a little different for me. I never know what's going to set me off. Sometimes I have to look at ingredients and say, oh, that's what happened. Um, and so I have not been able to do this with 100% perfection. And I am not. And if I if my abstinence were black and white, then when I slip or blow it or that's like a diet to me. Um, you know, I, I get on and get off of diets and I don't want to get on and get off of abstinence. So. Um, this said what to do with something you can't do perfectly. The remaining steps state perfect ideals. So to me, abstinence is a perfect ideal. It is the goal towards which I look and the measuring stick by which I estimate my progress. Seen in this light, it's, not, it's still difficult, but not at all impossible. The only urgent thing is that we make a beginning and we keep trying. We shall raise our eyes toward perfection and be ready to walk in that direction. It will seldom matter how haltingly we walk. The only question will be, are we ready? We ought to erase the hard and fast lines that we have drawn. Perhaps we shall be obliged in some cases still to say this I cannot give up yet. So for me, that's artificial sweeteners. But we should not say to ourselves, this I will never give up. I absolutely hope to give that up. I'm worried that it might be killing me. Um, and it's true that delay is dangerous and rebellion may be fatal. This is the exact point at which we abandon limited objectives and move towards God's will for us. So I really do trust that God will be, that God has been taking care of me, will take care of me, and uh, show me the way, always, if I stay in fit spiritual condition. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's going to be really hard to ask a question because I feel like. God brought me here just to hear you. Mm. Our family went through a traumatic brain injury as well. Sorry. Yeah. So I, I mean, it wasn't my husband, but it was my brother. Mm. And I was very much involved with his um, because well, people gave me such a hard time in my life, but I wasn't working at the time. Anyway, just unbelievable what this family has been through. Behind. That's why I, I, I understand a little bit of it. And um, so my question is, do you still, do you still live with your husband? <laughs> Ooh, I think it's, uh, yes, I absolutely do. <clears throat> and again, it has required such growth of me. Part of the brain injury is they don't know anything's changed. Like as soon as he came out of co- his coma and he thought he lived in the 1970s, he thought he should be working and driving. And um, he still doesn't know the extent of his injury. And I've had to be very strong and very loving at the same time and inspire him and encourage him and um, I don't want to say beat him. That never works. Um, um, Just be really strong about what he needs to do to recover. And, um, you know, like many brain injured people, he wants me to love him just like he is and I actually said to him if if you want someone to love you exactly as you are now I may not be your girl um, he, he was not willing to finish rehab 
And I made it very, very clear, you have to finish rehab. And he said, what happens if I haven't changed? I said, well, I'll deal with that when I when we get to it, but you got to at least do this for me. I've been here fighting for you, and I've been here fighting for us. And uh, I, deserve, I deserve your going to rehab and seeing what we have. Um, I can't even begin to tell you how strong I had to be about that and how direct I had to be about that. So... Um, and it was abstinence that forced me into that. I mean, this would have been 100 pounds before program, easily. So abstinence forced me into taking correct action every step of the way. What do you do to take care of yourself today? What do I do to take care of myself today? Um, I get enough sleep. And <laughs> really important. Um, and I get up in the morning and I do prayer and meditation. Um, I do pretty extensive meditation now. You know, I used to get up and read a day book and meditate for five or ten minutes, but now I do half an hour to 40 minutes meditation and ask what needs to happen today to keep me on an even keel and what needs to happen for abstinence today. And, um, you know, that's direct guidance that I get. And I take that guidance very, very seriously, even if it seems crazy. Um, and uh, I check in throughout the day. And uh, at night, I do my 10th step and I do another meditation. And I also have been making sure that I wind down through reading. So I do a little reading in the morning, just pleasure reading. Pleasure reading in the morning and pleasure reading at night. I didn't used to do that because God knows I'm busy. and. <laughs> you know how my life has been for so many years and I'm just not willing to do that anymore I'm willing to have some joy and relaxation and pleasure in my life mm-hmm. um, so when life becomes really big like, like what seems like overwhelmed how do you what programs tools or how do you bring yourself back to center? Again, I go back to prayer and meditation. Um, And I also have to tell you that um, I have said in the past that uh, on bad days, on good days, I'm an agnostic, and on bad days, I'm an atheist. Um, That's changed a little bit uh, because I, after this, after the injury happened, I really went on a spiritual journey and a spiritual odyssey. And uh, my definition of my higher power hasn't changed anymore any, at all. But um, my relationship to it has changed a lot. And uh, my trust in the spiritual guidance that I receive, my trust in the universe, and, um, and my absolute commitment to being spiritually fit. Because if I uh, and that that's the time in the morning, the time in the afternoon and checking in during the day and I and I listen to podcasts and I read books and um, all of that is to stay uh, on center point. And in the last three years, I wouldn't I've been off center point a lot. So it's like out there, back to center point, out there, back to center point, And thank God I get back to center point. What 
Uh, it's because I took care of myself. It's because I knew I was going to have a birthday party for myself. And it's because I knew I was going down the Grand Canyon. I was doing one of my bucket list things. And so that I could be and I prayed and meditated. And um, I knew that I could be there and love him and be gracious about it. Um, you know, I'm the one working a program, not them. And also just knowing that their ideas are are not correct. Uh, <laughs> it's um, you know a, a lot of my recovery has been because my whole mo was always I must be wrong you must be right and I must be wrong and now you know most of the time it's like eh, I'm right about this you can be wrong uh, you, you might be right but you're probably wrong <laughs> and uh, and I'm probably right and I don't need to tell people I'm right but it's just a, a lot about self trust and. Um, and trusting my decisions. It was it was actually pretty easy to go there. And my brother actually said to everyone, you know, there's someone else who has a birthday here, too. So, that yeah, that was nice. About what? Self-centeredness. She wants me to talk about self-centeredness. So I think there's a big difference between self-centeredness and um, self-care and taking care of oneself. Does that mean I'm done? Okay. So um, self-centeredness is it's all about me. The uh, you know if something happens in the world that doesn't suit me, then I did something wrong. That was my my big form of self-centeredness. Um, It's just thinking that everything revolves around me when everybody else, everybody, their life is just as big to them as my life is to me. And we're all just little dots on this planet, you know, and my self-centeredness was thinking that I'm a bigger dot on the planet. And um, so it's the books talk about the imagined ladder of worth, you know, that somewhere that the imagined ladder of worth is that I'm better than some people and some people are better than me, which just is a recipe for despair. Uh, but uh, knowing that we're all equals and we're all we're all in this together, and that's that's a very different place from from being self-centered. So um, I, in order to start taking care of myself, I had to tell myself to be self-centered for a while, and um, and then eventually I I got to a more even place of of being on the, on the same ladder rung, is that what it is, as, as everyone else. So I think that's it. <laughs>